Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Happy holidays, friends. I hope everyone is having a wonderful holiday season. I cannot believe we're nearing the end of 2022. If you're new here, I'm so glad you've joined us this week. Wellness and Wanderlust is all about helping you create a life you love, whatever that might look like for you. If you've been tuning in for a while, I'd love to thank you for being a part of the community and for continuing to show up here. I am so grateful to each and every one of you. I'm really excited to share our guest with you all today. This is a little bit of a different kind of episode than we usually have, um, but it's been a long time in the making. Our guest is the one and only Captain Alan Moses, my dad. He's a retired airline pilot who flew for a major airline for nearly 40 years. So for this episode, he came onto the show to answer listener questions. He shares his advice for those who are afraid of flying, one of his best dad jokes, how to change a car tire, his most memorable and his scariest moments as a pilot, and much more. Plus, he shares the truth behind flat earth and chemtrails. So if you're dealing with a conspiracy theorist in the family this holiday season, you'll definitely want to listen to this. It was so fun getting to have him on the show, and I know you're really going to enjoy this one. Our sponsor for today's episode has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because my doctor recommended I start incorporating greens into my morning routine, and I wanted to cut back on some of the many vitamins I take with breakfast. I work in community engagement and PR, so I'm on the go quite a bit and time is a luxury. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I take AG1 every morning before breakfast and it's great for digestion and gut health, energy, and immune health. AG1 is lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no nasty chemicals. AG1 has high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb, and it's a great way to take care of yourself with a busy lifestyle. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com wanderlust. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash wanderlust to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, friends, now on to today's show. Hey, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. So we have a very special guest on this week's episode. You guys had a lot of questions for him, but we have the one and only Alan Moses, my dad, as our guest this week. Well, Val, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm very proud of you proud of the podcast ask away all right well we had a lot of listeners writing in with questions so i know that we'll get into quite a bit today before we really dive in just tell our listeners about yourself well i'm a 63 year old man i have a beautiful wife two really amazing daughters and a uh, nice son-in-law i have two dogs and a grand dog and uh, i'm a retired airline pilot well i know that in school, you were a big hit on the career days, and whenever my friends find out that you're a pilot, everyone has tons of questions for you, and those were, I think, the bulk of the questions that we had come in today. So you recently retired. You had a long career at a major airline, and you really accomplished a lot in that time. So why don't you tell us first how you got into flying? Well, 37 years at a major airline. I guess I'm not supposed to say that the airline. Redacted. <laughs> But uh, 37 years, I retired as a 777 captain, which was the largest airplane they had. Flew international for the last 15 years. Enjoyed my career. I worked professional standards for the Airline Pilots Association, which was an honor to do. And uh, I've had really tons of great experience in the airline business. I've also very proud that uh, I was president of a dog rescue, Shepherd Help and Rescue, for several years and saved many dogs on death row that were deemed aggressive and were ready to be put down. So, very proud of that. When I was 15 years old, I wanted to be a vet. And I worked for a vet, a local vet, helped in a few operations, and I put a few dogs down with him. And I decided there's no way I could do that. So I always wanted to fly. 
I thought flying was the coolest thing in the world, but it was nothing that my family ever considered, and I never thought about it as a career. And my dad was looking through the career and occupational guide with me, and first thing we came across that looked good was an airline pilot. So we researched it, and I had a few neighbors that were airline pilots. I spoke to them, and I decided I wanted to be a pilot, and uh, that's how it started. And what would you say was your most memorable flight in that time? Okay, so I started flying. I took flying lessons at 16 years old and got my student license at 16, private at 17, commercial at 18, and became an instructor. And commercial license doesn't mean you're going to fly for an airline. It means you can fly for pay. And no airline at that time would hire anyone without thousands and thousands of hours of experience. So I worked my way up by instructing in little Cessna 152s and 172s and Piper Arrows and Archers and moved up from there to bigger and bigger until I finally had enough experience to uh, get hired with... Redacted. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, uh, I've had a great career. It's been a great run. My most memorable flying experience... I have many. I had the honor of flying the Puerto Rican relief flight that was after Hurricane Maria, and the island was really a mess, and my airline was good enough to donate their biggest airplane, a 777, for the relief effort, and we flew basically 400 AFL-CIO teamsters and doctors and nurses to the island along with at least 300,000 pounds of hurricane supplies. And it really was an honor to get picked to do that. We had CNN on board, and I was, again, honored to be asked to fly that flight. I know that's one of my proudest moments as a daughter. Was that one of your proudest as as a pilot? Yeah, that was very proud. I mean, I've had emergencies and things like that, which you do what you have to do and you land the airplane safely. But this was truly a a great honor to do it, to help the people, the gratitude. And then we flew about 400 people that had issues and had to get out of Puerto Rico back to Newark so they could get home, get medical care and things they needed. I think that that's so inspiring and it's great that you were able to, you know, that you were asked, I think, to be a part of that. What what an incredible honor. And again, that's something as a daughter, I was really proud that you were asked to do that. I think another thing that comes up for a lot of people when it comes to flying, and a lot of my friends have come to you for this before, but a lot of people are terrified when it comes to flying. And those were quite a few of the questions that came in too. Is it safe? What do I do about turbulence? What do you tell people when they have those fears? Well, one thing I'll say, turbulence is it's uncomfortable. People don't like it. But as a pilot, usually it's really no big deal. The airplane is stressed to take a lot more than your body can take. So the airplane is not going to fall out of the sky. What bothers me most about turbulence is that the people in the back are scared or getting sick. (laughs) And just some days, you just can't avoid it. It's at all altitudes because of the jet stream and because of weather phenomena, because of many things so far beyond your control. As a pilot, you can look at things like where the stratosphere and troposphere meet, which is called the tropopause, and you can get ideas there. You can look at upper level winds and see that. And with that, when you flight plan, you flight plan to get the smoothest route you possibly can. You also look at things like pilot reports from other pilots of what they've encountered. So you may be at 33,000 feet on a jet airway, which is kind of like a road in the sky, and one guy at 35,000 feet may be getting a smooth ride, and a guy at 31,000 feet may be getting a rough ride, or vice versa. Well, I know turbulent, like mom and I went on a flight right after one of the hurricanes and we felt like we were holding on for our lives, (laughs) but it can be scary. But I think in general, people just are scared of flying sometimes. And do you have any advice for anyone tuning in that wants to travel more and is just scared to do it? Yeah, my advice would be 
pick a major U.S. airline where you know their maintenance is going to be good, their pilot training is excellent. So many times I see people say, oh, they were on XYZ airline and it was the best flight they've ever had. And as a pilot, I've seen that some of their maintenance very questionable, but passengers don't know that. They just know that the flight attendants were phenomenal, treated them well, and that is part of the experience, but that shouldn't be the only part. So that's why I say most U.S. major carriers. I won't attest to some of the smaller ones, although I'm sure many are very good, but the majors, we have uh, a lot of good safeties in place, including a very strong union. And whether you're pro-union or anti-union, uh, the benefit of having the Airline Pilots Association is if I find something that the FAA may say is legal to fly and it's deferrable, meaning they can fly with it broken. 777 has five generators, two normal generators, two backup generators, and an auxiliary power unit generator. But not all the generators put out an, uh, the same amount of energy. So if I'm flying from Miami to New York, I have a ton of airports that if something happened, I can land. If I'm flying to Japan and I'm flying over the North Pole, I don't have those options. So what the FAA, even though may say it's legal, it's up to the individual captain to decide, should I take this or should I not? My biggest priority was always, would I want a guy taking this airplane if my wife and kids were on board? And that's how I made many of my decisions. I know a lot of people get upset when the flight is delayed or even canceled because of a mechanical. And my thought was always, hey, if they think it's bad enough, then I don't want to be on that plane anyway. Yeah, you got to figure we all, uh, or at least most of us have families. We all want to live. We all have things outside of being a pilot that we want to do. And no one wants to uh, cut that short. We're on the airplane and we're, most of us are conservative in that respect i'd say 99.9 percent .9%, so well i think that's reassuring for many of us that want to go places especially as life starts to open back up a little bit more you know you retired fairly recently and you had a long career with the airline and you were flying for a long time before you were with the airline what do you miss most about being a pilot i miss flying the airplane physically flying the airplane i don't miss commuting to work going from uh, South Florida Airport to Newark to start my three or four or five or week trip. But that was always a hassle. But once you get in the airplane, start taxiing out, and this airplane had a gross weight of 777,000 pounds, and the engines put out approximately 115,000 pounds of thrust each. So it truly was a rush, flying something that's over 230 feet long. Basically, you're flying a football field. It was just a thrill. Every time I took off and every time I landed, it was a total thrill. I think that's so cool that you got to do the thing you dreamed about as a little kid and that I, it's, it's a really cool job, you know, as, as I said, it was, you were always the most popular one coming into the career days when we were in school. And I, I think it's really cool that you got to do that. Just so the listeners are aware, can you tell us just some of the places that you got to go? Just the, I think the number of places was so wild over the years. And I got to go all over the Middle East, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait. Dubai, those are some of those locations. Japan, China, Korea, Singapore, all over Europe. I really enjoyed Paris, Rome, but Europe I enjoyed immensely. And then a lot of domestic flying. In my early days, a lot of the flying was on the 727, and it was all little local airports like Bismarck and uh, Duluth and places that I would never have gone so I got to see a lot of places, a lot of culture, and uh, a lot of differences in our society and in other societies. 
I always thought that was so cool. And I always laugh when I'm driving somewhere in the state and I'm in a small town and you know that there's some small airport there that I would never have heard of because, you know, that was what you did for such a long time. You know, we had a lot of questions, of course, about about you being a pilot, but we had a lot of general dad questions, I think, too. And I'd love to ask you, because even the room that we're sitting in right now, you built the wall unit that's in here. You are my car negotiator for all things with uh, with the cars. Um, you know a lot of the traditional, you know, quote unquote, dad things that, that we think about. And we actually had someone write in, and I know this can be a little bit difficult on an audio type of platform but how do you change a tire (laughs) first thing is make sure you have a good jack i guess the first thing would be call triple (laughs) a and if you don't have triple a and everybody should know how then call my dad yeah have a good jack and the biggest thing is that is make sure the jack is secure when you start jacking up the car and there's a tire wrench included and before you lift the car all the way up, loosen all the bolts. They loosen in a counterclockwise as you're looking forward. They loosen in a counterclockwise way. For those of you guys that are only used to digital clocks, <laughs> you'll uh, kind of want to look up at an old wall clock to make sure uh, <laughs> clockwise and counterclockwise. You loosen each bolt raise the car pull the tire off put the spare tire on make sure there's air in it and uh, go from there tighten them all up lower the car again make sure before you ever raise a car the jack is secure and where the jack is supposed to be usually in the trunk there's a sticker a decal or at least in your owner's manual of where to actually put the jack yeah, we'll need to start you, I think, on a YouTube channel because, you know, some of the stuff that, you know, it's, it's so visual, I think. But this is something when it cools down a little bit more, I probably need to do outside <laughs> with you. Well, another question on a completely different note that somebody wrote in, they wanted to know qualities that your daughter's boyfriends must have. And obviously, one of your daughters is married. So hopefully it's a perfect description of your son-in-law. But um, what qualities are important to you? I know you were going to start your gun collection when we all started dating (laughs) in high school. Well, bottom line, I, I want them to treat my daughters like the people they need to be treated like. They're Both daughters, I'm so proud of, Valerie and and her sister, Julie. They both give so much back to the community. Valerie's on the board. I shouldn't say this, I don't know, on this podcast. But Valerie is on the board of so many volunteer organizations and just puts in so much time and effort to help others. And Julie is a speech pathologist helping children going the extra mile to... uh, help whenever she can and uh, I'm just so proud. My son-in-law is a really good guy, proud of him and as long as he treats my daughter well, I'll love him. Just treat my daughters the way they need to be treated and it goes both ways. Well, I like that answer and thank you so much. It's very kind. (laughs) Julie and I are all right. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I had another person who wrote in asking about what is the hardest age to parent and I know that there have been probably good years and bad years. What would you say was the easiest or the best? And what was the hardest? Well, I think you're always going to worry about your children. When they were young, you worry about every little health issue. And as they get older, I think the middle school years were really tough. For I can remember for myself, that's when it started getting a little tougher. But for girls, I think girls are mean. Yeah. From everything I've seen, girls can be brutal to each other. Not your girls. (laughs) (laughs) Girls can be brutal. Girls can be mean. And uh, I'm glad my girls weren't. At least I pray they weren't. And I don't think they were. And then when they get older, high school. And fortunately for us, we didn't worry about high school shootings. That was like a non-event. That just didn't happen. And now that's another thing to add to the worry list. I worried about them driving, and not their driving skills, but all the crazies out there. Worried about what kind of college they're going to get into, and uh, uh, what they're going to do for work, who they're going to meet, and who they're dating. You just never stop worrying until I think you get old enough where they have to worry about you, 
and I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> at least I hope not. My dad at 93, the last cup, the last year and a half, we kind of worried about him for health issues. He was mentally sound till the day he died, but there were some health issues, and uh, that actually precipitated my 37 years of flying for the airline ending. So during COVID, so I could spend more time with him, and it was worth it. So when do you stop worrying? You never stop worrying about your kids. Yeah, and I think that sandwich generation is such a that's a, such a tough time too because then you're worried about your kids, but you're also worried about your parents. I'm grateful not to be. I mean, I worry about everything all the time in general, but I'm not worried about you getting around in the world and taking care of yourself. Um, Grandpa was giving stock tips to me. I think the last week of his life, which was. Amazing. So I guess another question, this one came in. I'm a little scared of what the answer might be, but somebody asked what I was like as a kid, I guess from your perspective. Uh, Valerie was always the sweetest kid. Valerie was always very self-directed and in her own little world where if she wanted to do something, if we told her to clean her room, she might spend four hours organizing her books in alphabetical order and then maybe by author, and the most unbelievably detailed. She was just amazing in that respect. She was always a nice, nice kid, always had a very nice personality, prolific writer. She just loved to write and uh, loved to read, and kind of uh, maybe a little bit self-guided, self-directed for sure. She didn't need to be around a lot of people. She just did her own thing very independent. Yeah, I think my introvert self definitely was around as a little kid. I think I'm sort of a combination of you guys, though, Yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, hopefully you got the good from each. Uh, I got all the bad from each. No, I got the headaches from, from yeah, you. Yeah, my but... side of the family, that's for sure. But it was nice. You know, I was recently asked on an interview myself about what did I learn from my parents and what was it like, and... I think I was really lucky because you guys let me be my weird little self and kind of pursue what I was interested in and not be as focused on you need to follow this particular path, but just are you being a nice person? And I think that that was more important to you guys than are we going to make a certain salary? And that has kind of stuck with me. Valerie, you had a teacher in pre-K that was so upset that you couldn't cut with a scissor. And that was like, oh my God, she can't cut with a scissor. And actually, my parents said, don't worry, she'll learn. Don't worry about that. How many of these kids can read? Because Val was reading at a super young age. So, you know, they excel in one area and maybe not all. And in my job today, I don't think I really have to cut with scissors very often. So (laughs) it didn't catch up with me too much. Hopefully not. Yeah. Now, if I were going to be an art teacher, it might be a different story, but that's right. yeah, well, thank you. That was very nice. I have another question that came in and I guess we'll have to keep it sort of appropriate, but what is your best dad joke? Oh God, <laughs> my jokes are pretty much uh, not fit for public <laughs> consumption, so I think I'll uh, pass on that one. <laughs> Do you want to tell everybody about the lady on the, on the bus? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you about the uh, dog. I was fixing the lawnmower, and I was soaking the carburetor in gasoline, and the dog next door started drinking the gasoline, and then it just started running around and running around, and it just didn't stop running. And then what happened? It kept running and running. Did it? When did it stop? When it ran out of gas. So that's my dad joke. There uh, you go. <laughs> that one still makes me laugh. Now, I do have to ask you, too, because I think a lot of my interest in these wellness modalities, like a lot of them have been around for a very long time. And there are things that you were doing when I was growing up and earlier. And I think you inspired a lot of that interest. And I'd love to know a little bit more about the wellness practices you've taken on, what your, what your lifestyle kind of looks like and your interest. Well, food wise, I try to eat real whole foods, not processed foods. The more adulterated a food is, I think the unhealthier it is, including loading it up with sodium and things like that. Uh, Another wellness 
thing besides eating what I consider well and cutting back on the sugar and processed food would be to work out every day. So every day I'd try, even when I was flying, I would fly a 14, 15 hour flight to Japan and get in and I would still, if I couldn't run, I would walk on the treadmill for a half hour or do the elliptical for a half hour, something, just to get my blood moving. And uh, every day I would try to do something, whether it was push-ups, uh, if there was no gym, and sit-ups and pull-ups, whatever I could do. So staying active was is my number one. And still I'm trying. Yeah, and I think you're really good about keeping up with the latest research. And what I like with you, like I think I've gotten from you or inherited from you is kind of being a little bit of a guinea pig where you'll try a lot of different things and see what what works and what doesn't. And no offense to the listeners, I'd say you're probably the number one listener of the show. And I know that you've tried out a lot of what some of the some of the guests have recommended. Are there any practices that have stuck for you or that you've been? Well, I think there, there's a few things. Uh, I think number one, what might work for me may not work for you. So everyone's obviously different. Susan, my wife, she likes to eat tiny little meals all day long. For me, that doesn't work. I'd be 300 pounds. But one of the tips on one of the podcasts was, and then a recent podcast kind of reiterated, but this was a sleep podcast, and they said do not eat any food within three hours of bedtime. And since I did that, I actually lost like four pounds without trying. And I'm not heavy by any means, so it worked out well. But they, their recommendation was to sleep better. And I don't sleep well, but I think that's 37 years of changing time zones. And with that being said, it's been a, a real positive thing by not eating within three hours of... And uh, waiting, this intermittent fasting, I wouldn't even call it fasting as much as... So if I'm going to go to bed at 11, I don't eat past 8 o'clock. And I try to have my big meal around six and maybe a few little snacks, which are my downfall, chocolate. Mm. And then I won't eat until after eight in the morning, preferably about nine or ten. So that's that's my number one, that and exercise. Yeah, I've been definitely experimenting with the with the eating window too. And I'm earlier into it than you, but I'm seeing that I feel a little bit better in the morning so far. But yeah, I think that all of that is fantastic. And it's it's been cool to see you try some of the things as well. And we kind of do some of them together. And you're up for some of the weird, like try different foods and things like that, which is always appreciated when I'm kind of experimenting with the different modalities. Now, on a more serious note, we had a lot of questions come in, as I mentioned, about the flying. And they asked about your most memorable flight, but there were also questions about the scariest flight that you ever had. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah, okay. As far as scary goes, I've had lots of emergencies, flaps up landings, and I've had an engine fail, and things like that, which... We're trained, we're trained well, and uh, we handle it, land, and uh, it could be a little traumatic because you have three, 400 lives behind you. But my scariest flight was on 9-11. I was flying a 767, which was one of the planes that was hijacked, from Miami to San Francisco, and it was a 6 or 7 a.m. departure, very early departure. I didn't sleep the night before because my dog Shana, who was a puppy at the time, she had a sick tummy and started crying at one o'clock in the morning. And uh, I let her out and she ran to the neighbors to defile their lawn. And anyway, so after that I was up. I had to get up at four anyway to get to the airport. So I was tired. The morning when we look before a flight, we always look at the weather to where we're going, notices to airmen, what airways are shut down and what certain airports along the way, uh, if there's restrictions or runways closed. So we know if there's an emergency, we can't land at those. So it gives us some insight. And that morning, 
I said to my co-pilot, I said, my God, there's not a cloud in the sky. I looked at the whole country and the, the weather was just beautiful. Clear blue skies. So anyway, I made that comment. And uh, a couple hours into the flight, we got a uh, message on our ACARS, which is a little computer, from dispatch saying that American Airlines crashed into the World Trade Center. I looked at my co-pilot, and we both looked stunned with a WTF look, like, oh my God. And I speculated that, well, maybe he took off at Kennedy on runway 31, and lost an engine and really screwed up and hit the World Trade Center. That was my initial. About three minutes later, I got another eight cars message from the company saying, second airplane crashed into World Trade. Now I'm thinking, gee, I hope it's none of my friends. And uh, what the hell is going on? And then I got another message saying, don't allow anyone into your cockpit. Possible hijackers on board. Now our original training said that a hijacker, they don't want to die. Take them wherever they want to go. And conventional wisdom back then was Havana. And we had charts with Havana as the center with concentric rings, 250 miles, 500 miles, 1,000 miles. So we could look and say, okay, if we are here, XYZ position, it's a thousand miles to uh, Havana, I will need approximately 20,000 pounds of fuel to get there. So I have all those options at my disposal. And I had just gone through security training right before, like literally within a few days. And again, conventional wisdom was wrong that they did want to die. So we had no idea, and unfortunately, I would have been sucker punched as quick as those other pilots. Those other pilots, one of them was a boxer in the Marines, and if he knew it was coming, there's no way they would have been able to slash his throat. But unfortunately, our training said, let him in the cockpit, talk to him, negotiate with him, take them where they want to go. So those poor pilots were basically sucker punched. They had no idea what was going on. So in the meantime, we were halfway between Oklahoma City and Dallas. And air traffic control came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, we have a national emergency. Pick your alternate and land now. We were at 35,000 feet. It was a quick, instant decision. I figured Dallas is going to be a bigger city with more... Now we thought it could be nuclear attack from Russia. We had no idea that it was 16 or 19 crazies. So we didn't know what was going on. We had no guidance. And the conventional wisdom and air traffic control said, you know, get on the ground ASAP, pick your alternate. So I figured Oklahoma City is wide open. They've already had a terrorist attack once with the uh, government building being bombed. It's more spread out, so it would be safer for me and my passengers, and I could get in really fast. And at that point, air traffic control, there's different, there's centers, there's approach control, and right away they switched, when I made that decision, they switched me to uh, approach control, who cleared me for any approach I wanted into any runway I wanted, and uh, we landed in Oklahoma City in basically less than eight minutes from 35,000 feet to wow. touchdown. I told our purser, who I had known for years, hey, I don't know what's going on. And then I made an announcement to the passengers, ladies and gentlemen, we have no idea what's going on, but there is a national emergency. We've all been ordered to land ASAP, and we are landing now put your seatbelts on and listen to the flight attendants. And the flight attendants, we were all dumbfounded, caught by total surprise. So we ended up landing in Oklahoma City. Again, I didn't know the extent, I didn't even know what happened and that there were two more airplanes in the air. So we taxied in and Oklahoma City did not have jetways that were high enough to reach the 767 front door. So when people were getting off, 
they had to jump about a foot to get on the jetway and I was helping people off. My co-pilot, I've had really amazing co-pilots. Unfortunately, this guy was not uh, one of them. He kind of hid in the cockpit with the door locked. I wanted to see the passengers getting off and kind of reassure them and if there were attackers, I wanted to see them coming at me instead of waiting for them to break in and surprise me. Back then, cockpit doors were not secure, and uh, now those doors are Kevlar, and they're beyond secure. So uh, we got off, we got in, I went down to flight operations and saw the TV replaying the loop of one of the airplanes hitting the World Trade, and got a little bit of news background on what was going on. I tried to call my wife and all circuits were busy on my cell phone. Finally got through to her and uh, the kids were at school and I think she ended up picking them both up and uh, that's about it. It was just a creepy worst day, worst day ever for flying. But thank God it wasn't worse. It was scary, and I was, you know, I was a kid, and I was fortunate I didn't know about any of it until we already knew you were okay, but I know it had to be so scary for mom and, you know, the grandparents and all of that, and I've always admired that you are good at making, like, the decision in this scary, stressful situation, and I can't even imagine what you must have been going through. Well, there wasn't a lot of choice, yeah. so... It worked out well. We picked, uh, unfortunately, we were stuck on the ground for three days, and I probably should have picked Dallas because it was a, in my mind, a much better city to be in, especially uh, with the national emergency that there was. But three days later, we ended up loading up the airplane, and we were the first flight into San Francisco. As we landed, we were escorted by fighters on both sides. Mm. And I'm thinking, here's two 20-year-old kids, one in each fighter, waiting for us to go off course to basically obliterate us if we don't follow the rules. And we landed and really got a hero's welcome. We taxied to the gate and people had signs. And then, you know, we learned more and more every day of what, what happened. And... Fortunately, we flew a flight back to Miami and got in on Val's birthday at, I think I walked in the door about 11.55, so just made it in time for her birthday. That was the best birthday present, like hands down. So yeah, I got tears thinking about yeah. that. So. Yeah, it was, a, it was a scary time and yeah, we were so thankful that you came home and I can't even imagine you know, being in the air and having to make decisions like, you know, at a time like that, like how terrifying that must have been. But, you know, I've always been so grateful that that you came home and. Yeah, it wasn't terrifying as much as shocking. Yeah, it was uh, not knowing and being trained so wrong. And this was uh, government training and I'm not blaming the government, but it was the best information they had at the time which was not good information. Uh, I think they found out that one agency wasn't sharing with another. And uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people lost their lives because of it. Fortunately for me, I was not one of them and my family was not. So thank God for that. On a lighter note, uh, my favorite cities, if I had to pick favorite cities that I visited, I would say Tokyo, New York, Paris, and Rome, and Tel Aviv. Those would be my top cities that I just loved going to. Had lots of fun, lots to do, lots to see, major culture. Those were great places. Tell everyone about 5 a.m. sushi. Oh, well, Tokyo is 12 or 13 hours, depending on... Uh, daylight savings different from us on the East Coast. So at 5 a.m. was 5 p.m. 
And if I had a short layover, which most of them were not long, uh, I would get in and we'd get to the hotel about two or three in the afternoon. I would get a quick workout in and maybe grab, believe it or not, I've never had eggs as good as in Japan. I don't know how really? they feed their hens, or, but I would go to, and 7-Elevens in Asia are not like 7-Elevens here. They have like really good sandwiches. You can even eat sushi at a 7-Eleven, which I would never do here. <laughs> so I would grab a quick snack, get a half hour of exercise, wind down. Now it was five, it would be like 2 a.m. East Coast on our body time, 3 a.m. So I would go to sleep and I could only get a few hours of sleep and then I'd be up. So I would work out literally for about two hours between lifting weights and uh, doing cardio. And I would meet a bunch of my airline buddies from different bases at the gym. My buddy Phil, he worked out like I did and we were new hires. He was one class ahead of me and I would see him in the gym and we would make a date. Okay, 5 a.m. we'll meet uh, in the lobby and we would go to my favorite sushi place and a lot of kids kids like 20 year olds I shouldn't say kids in Tokyo were partying all night and then they'd be done and they would go for sushi so the sushi places in certain cities that we stayed in you know Tokyo has its suburbs or sections and this was in Rapungi and uh, they were open all night long and they would be jam-packed and I've heard that Japanese were ethnocentric and all I know is I was treated like a king. They would see me every week and they would, people would be waiting in line and they would stick me in a corner somewhere. Maybe they didn't, were embarrassed, I don't <laughs> know. And treat me like a king and I would get, uh, they had the best miso soup and I would get a whole bunch of different sushi. And not to sound like a snob, but the worst sushi I had in Japan was probably better than the best sushi I've had here. Wow. Anyway, so that was my 5 a.m. sushi. Get back to the hotel, try to get a nap for two, three, four hours, and then wake up, shower, start my flight planning. And now, last few years, everything, I could pull up all my paperwork on the computer. I would call dispatch and figure a routing that was, companies want usually a routing that saves them time and money, money being fuel and uh, time the airplane is in the air. But as a pilot, and we talked about turbulence, I want a routing where people are gonna be the most comfortable. And if it takes 10 minutes longer, so be it. Anyway, we would negotiate on a, a route that looked good to both of us. And you also, people don't realize, we may have been at odds with Russia, but we use their airspace. And they love us because every time United Airlines or American Airlines or any other airline checks in, costs them $1,000. So they're making millions, their air traffic control system. The airlines are saving tons of money by going a more efficient route. And we usually go over the North Pole to get there. So anyway, I do the flight planning and then they pick us up. We go to the airport and 14 hours later, we'd be uh, in Newark. Well, I have to ask you too, one more flight question, just based on, you know, when you mentioned the North Pole, what do you have to say to the flat earthers that might be tuning in? Uh, I would say to them the same thing I would say to the people that believe in contrails being chemical trails. A lot of conspiracy people out there. Every pilot kind of laughs about the ignorance of flat earth and also the ignorance of chemtrails because it just does not exist and it's not like a secret society <laughs> of pilots you couldn't get a hundred thousand pilots to agree on anything and i don't think you'll find five pilots that believe in chemtrails and those are ones that have no idea what a contrail is which is water vapor on a very cold atmosphere creating what looks like a smoke trail as far as flat earth, I've been over the North Pole where I could see the sun on one side and the moon on the other. When you get high enough, 45,000 feet or 
43,000 feet or whatever, you can see the actual curvature of the Earth. So that's what I say about flat Earth people. <laughs> so you and the other pilots aren't getting together after this to laugh about that it's actually flat. Well, no. no. With, with chemtrails, I know pilots that have programmed the flight management computer, which looks like you push a button and it'll say chemtrail. <laughs> Like you can actually turn it on and off, which is really a joke. So That's too funny. I always laugh at all of the conspiracy theorists and some of the things I hear about the chemtrails just because, I mean, Julie and I were pointing at contrails in the sky as little kids. And I, I don't know, people are a little crazy, but I mean, we the flat had, earth. We had a neighbor kid that was telling me all about them. And he gave me a video to watch and it was some fat schlub that... <laughs> put on a shirt with four stripes so and he says I'm a captain and it was really kind of funny and I said to this kid Sam you know my daughters I live in your neighborhood do you believe me or some stranger you see on YouTube <laughs> <laughs> obviously he believed the stranger he saw on get YouTube it. I'm just kidding so well, thank you for clearing that up. If we do have anyone that believes in that listening, hopefully not. But I'd love to switch gears. I have some rapid fire questions and it would not be fair to the listeners if I don't get to ask you those. Okay. You know, you've answered some of them already, but I guess your top wellness tip. Exercise every day and eat unprocessed food. I think that's pretty good. Where is your favorite travel destination? Kind of well, got I in. I kind of mentioned those. I love Japan, I love Tel Aviv, I love New York, Paris, Rome. There's so many great places to see. I am not a major fan of the rest of the Middle East. Uh, Dubai, I think, was totally overrated. And for me, I was not that comfortable. They say that they're progressive, but they were not. I think of all the trips you took, my bucket list trip would be Zurich. Zurich. Oh, I forgot to mention Zurich. That is another beautiful, beautiful city. And clean and comfortable, expensive. But Zurich is another really great city. Yeah, I want to go there for sure. The pictures you used to bring back from all these places, just amazing. Now, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Oh, God. Well, I love dogs, as you know. Yeah. We've rescued a few, and uh, they're just the most loyal, nicest pet in the world. But as far as flying goes, I think like eagles and raptors, and I guess I'm kind of a wimp and I don't like killing things, so that would preclude the being an eagle, I guess, but they are just neat, neat animals. They are pretty cool. If you could master a completely new skill, and maybe this is something you do in retirement or it could be a hypothetical, but what would that be? It's something I can't do. Both my wife and daughters have a really a uh, aptitude toward language. I've gone to all these places and I would do my, when I would go to South America, I would do my announcement in Spanish with a perfect grammar because I went over it with my daughter and with Hispanic people. But my accent was awful and people would always laugh and say, hey, who's the gringo? <laughs> And they'd say, thank you. I mean, thank you for trying. And they understood what I said, but it was, my accent was not good. In Japan, I would, konnichiwa, and a few words I know in Israel. You know uh, all the bad words in Israel? Yeah, unfortunately I do. <laughs> I also know, thank you, todaraba. Mm -hmm. But language would be yeah. mine. Well, maybe we'll get you on Duolingo with mom and you guys can No, compete. I, Susan is amazing at language my she kids are amazing at language and um and my son-in-law speaks three languages fluently so i am a little jealous in that respect i wish he'd practice with us yeah <laughs> yeah i'd like to i'd like to master another language i still feel a little bit of the imposter syndrome with it but i think it's such a good one and i think it's cool that you know so many you know a little bit from a lot and just that that you did do the announcements in spanish i think that I think it always means a lot to people when, when you try. Yeah, and it's funny. I didn't want the flight attendants at 2 in the morning. Every time we have to put the seatbelt sign on, we have to say, seatbelts, please, just required by the FAA. And 
if I said seatbelts, please, the language flight attendant would have to wake up or whatever they're doing and get on the PA and say in Spanish or Portuguese. So, so I learned those like cintos de segurança <laughs> or cinturones de seguridad, por favor. I can speak like 10 words in five languages. <laughs> Unfortunately, not anymore. Well, I guess the other question I have for you, it could tie into this or it could be completely separate, but what would be next on your bucket list? Next would be for your mom and I to go, I think, on a trip to, I'd like to show her Japan. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see more of Japan than the little 30-hour layovers I've had. So that would be, uh, I think, next on my bucket list. That would be so cool. I want to go to the bunny island that they have where all the bunnies just come running to you. There's Llama Island oh. in Hong Kong, off Hong Kong. and That's actually a cool island. The world is amazing how much there is to see and you can never see it all. But there's a few garden spots and I would like to take my wife to see them now that we're retired. And, and, and your children and your son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We'll table that. Dad, this is so fun, and I'm so glad we got to do this. And thank you for being a good sport and coming on and for all your support with everything. Do you have anything else you'd like the listeners to know before I let you go? I would just like to thank you, Valerie, for having me and let you know how proud I am, how much you do for everyone, and uh, all the volunteering, and you're just amazing. And I'm so proud. Proud of you, your sister. I'm a lucky guy. Thank you for having me. You guys sent in so many questions for this week's episode, so I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. Let me know if you want us to record a part two. Even though he's my dad and I've known him my entire life, it's still really fun to get to ask him these types of questions, and I truly loved getting to interview him for the show. So if you have questions for him that you'd like to hear in a second episode, feel free to send them my way. I want to thank you all so much for being a part of our community and for tuning into the show. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore in the future on Wellness and Wanderlust, please feel free to reach out to me. I am on Instagram at Wellness and Wanderlust blog. You can also email me at Valerie at Wellness and Wanderlust.net. One of the best ways to lend your support to the show is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that others can see what you think of the show and it helps people to find it a little bit better too. It takes just a few minutes out of your day and it truly makes all of the difference. So if you'd like to give me a Christmas present, that is the one. (laughs) That is what I am looking for this year is just feedback and how I can better support you in your journey. So please feel free to reach out to me or leave that review. And I hope you all have a fantastic holiday season. This is not the last episode of 2022. So stay tuned. We got a few more coming up, but I hope you all have a fantastic day. I cannot wait to see you next time.